Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Today, let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 1 through 25, and I'll read the last six for us now as we prepare to hear from lead pastor Travis Simone as he kicks off our new sermon series titled, The Life of Jesus' Church. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's always a sad time of year for me as we come to the end of the annual focus. We're in the last series of our annual focus and it's a sad time of year for me because that means blank page time for me to, uh, to look ahead to next year. But it's been a wonderful year studying two words that Jesus uttered in Matthew chapter 16. My church. And we've been asking the question, what did Jesus mean when he uttered those two words? We know, of course, that he meant it's his. The church is his and not ours. And so he gets to define what the church is for us. We do not define what the church is according to our wants, needs, desires, emotions, whatever it might be. And so we've gone on this odyssey through God's word, looking at the beauty of my church the mission of my church, the worship of my church, the relationships of my church, the location of my church, the chosen instrument, the life of the Apostle Paul during the season leading up to Easter, the chosen instrument of my church. And we come to our final series entitled The Life of My Church. What does life look like inside the church How do our lives together work? What priorities should we organize them around? And we'll start the series with the topic of worship. Because you see, worship has the potential to revive the church, but often opinions about worship end up dividing the church. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, what we'll learn is that worship is the first work of the church. When I was a little boy, like many little boys, I dreamed of winning the World Series. And I had a friend, he was my best friend in elementary school, his name was Aaron, and I would call him A, and he would call me T, and whenever we, I would go over to his house, there was a park near his house, and it had this big brick wall in the park. And we would pretend that the brick wall was like the backstop of a major league baseball stadium. And we were playing in the World Series. There was no regular season. There were no playoffs. It was always just the World Series. And his favorite team was the Dodgers. And he liked to pitch. And I liked to play catcher. And so when he would pitch, he was always Oral Hershiser. 
And I was always Mike Sosha. And then my favorite team is the New York Mets doing pretty well this year. And so then we would switch, and he would have to be Dwight Gooden. And I would be Gary Carter. And it was always the bottom of the ninth, you know, two outs. You're always the home team when you're a little kid winning the World Series. You're always the home team. It's always a walk-off win. And you win every time. You never lose the World Series when you're a little boy. And we would win the World Series, and we would be just like the players. We would go out. We would, we would run out to the field. We would high-five each other. We would dance around. We would cheer. You know, the players pile on top of each other. We would jump on, make a pile. There was only two of us, so it was a little awkward. But we would go through the whole thing. There'd be ghost runners, intricate situations, all kinds of things. And as little kids, I think we just imagined that if we ever did something like win the World Series, that our work in this world would just be complete, that we'd never feel the need to accomplish anything else. Like that would just be the pinnacle. If you could climb that mountain, your life would just have been the life to have lived. I was listening to an interview with a man named David Sampson, who served as the president of the Miami Marlins. And this is what he said after winning the World Series. Do you know what feeling I had when we won the World Series? My goodness, what work will I have to do now? My goodness, what work will I have to do now? And anyone who's ever accomplished something in life knows the truth of these words. There's an old phrase, a good deed leads to another. You finish that project at work, your boss moves you on to the next one. You make budget on December 31st. January 1st, you're at zero again. Whatever mountain you climb in life, you know, my goodness, what work will I have to do now? All our work is incomplete. So we long for rest. We pray our moral performance will be enough. We hope one day we can sit down and not have things fall apart around us. And then we read these words in Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his sacrifice, daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The priest is sitting there doing the work over and over and over again, wondering, will this ever actually work? Will I ever be able to stop? Does the work ever end? Can I ever sit down? Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is seated. His work is complete. And out of his complete work, a new community is created. Look at verses 14 through 18 in your passage. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That Jesus take takes his work, he applies it to those who place their faith in him. And then the author goes on to quote the book of Jeremiah. 
where Jeremiah writes of a new covenant, a new covenant community in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us and after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Back to the writer of Hebrews, verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. And so out of his complete work, this community is created, the community the Bible calls the church, and it's a community of forgiven sinners. There's no longer a need to gather to make these sacrifices for sin. You don't have to gather to enhance your status or your performance before God. You don't gather in order to make yourself more worthy in God's sight, and you don't gather to achieve something that somehow God will deem as worthwhile for you to have done with your life. So my question is, what work then is there for this community to do? What does the community do when it then gets together? The answer is in verse 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, and this is a big therefore in this passage, the author of Hebrews has had a sustained argument, a sustained conversation from Hebrews chapter one, verse one, under the theme, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is better than the old covenant. And now we read in chapter 10, Jesus has offered a better sacrifice than any priest could ever make. And so therefore, in light of all that, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. You see, the work for the community to do the first work of the church is worship. Look at all of that language there in verses 19 through 22. The holy places, the blood of Jesus, a, a new and living way, a curtain that is the flesh of Jesus that you're drawing near to God. And if that doesn't convince you that the author is talking about worship, that phrase, draw near, in the language in which the writer of Hebrews is writing, the Greek language, it is actually a technical term for worship. The biblical scholar N.T. Wright picks up on this technical term for worship in his own translation of the New Testament entitled the Kingdom New Testament. And he actually translates verse 22a, the first part of verse 22, he translates it, so let us therefore come to worship. In light of all of this that Jesus has done, the completed work of Jesus, the only thing left for us to do is therefore let us come to worship. The first work of this new community is to worship the one who has completed the work. The author then goes on to repeat a phrase three different times. If you look at your song sheet, you'll see it in verse 22, 23, and 24. It's right there, boom, boom, boom. 
And the phrase is, let us. Let us do this, let us do that, let us. These are the author's pleas. He's pleading, let us. He's pleading with the congregation, pleading with them in how they are to approach worship. The three pleas for worship, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider how. First, draw near. Something keeps people from worship. Worship is the best opportunity. I see people regularly pass up. It's no secret in the world that church attendance is down. And it's no secret that even among people that are followers of Jesus that the attendance can be, the, the, the participation in worship can sometimes be a bit sporadic. It's the best opportunity I see people regularly pass up. The opportunity is clearly laid out for people in Revelation chapter four. We'll actually respond with a song called Revelation Song. And I hope we have this verse in our minds as we sing that song at the end of the sermon. Revelation 4.1 says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open to heaven. The apostle John looks up, and there's a door, and it's cracked, and the door leads into heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. There is a door open to heaven and there is an angel looking at the apostle John and the angel says to him, John, yeah, John, come up here. Can you imagine him saying no to that? Can you imagine? And yet that is what we do. When we fail to draw near in worship. Every time we gather together for worship, there is a door open to heaven and the angels of God are saying, we're already singing. Why don't you come up here with us? If the door is open, why doesn't everyone walk through? Well, I think if you go back to the, some of the first stories in the Bible, you, you'll see two things. I'll, I'll call them shame and blame. Shame and blame. That the first man and the first woman in Genesis 2.25, it says that they were both naked. It says the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They feel no shame. They're completely exposed to one another and yet it's a shame-free environment. And then in chapter three, when sin and disobedience enter the world, what's the first thing they do? They cover up. They cover themselves. They've become aware of their shame. And then when they hear the Lord walking in the cool of the day, which can also be translated the wind of the morning, reminding you of the great spirit of God, the winds of God sweeping over creation. They hear God coming. And what do they do? They hide. Their shame causes them not to walk through the door. And then when God says, what happened? They start blaming each other. And Adam even blames God. 
Why don't we walk through the door? We often have shame about the life that we've lived. What happened last week? What happened last month? That sin we haven't quite fully confessed to God? The thing we haven't quite completely told our spouse about that's just eating away at our soul? And so it's never just about schedules. There's always a shame component when people are avoiding walking through that door. And there's typically a blame component too. If God, if you would only give me a better job and I could take some time off, then I could finally make this a priority. You know, if that youth soccer coach would just, you know, schedule games that aren't on a Sunday, then then I could really do it. We have all kinds of excuses, all kinds of people and things that we blame. Which is why the writer of Hebrews, when he says draw near, the next thing that he says is all of the ways we are forgiven. All of the ways that God has taken on our guilt and shame and there that the blame fell on Jesus Christ and we now enter through that door with his righteousness, not our works. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That wash with pure water is a reference to baptism. And we'll be celebrating baptism on May 15th in this series. You can email baptism at wcchapel.org. We would love to make sure you have walked through that beautiful symbol of baptism. And when you're baptized, we say, buried with Christ, raised to new life. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, your bodies have been washed with pure water. You've been buried with Christ. You're raised to a brand new life in Christ. There's no shame. Jesus took the blame. He reminds us that our sins have been forgiven, and says, therefore, I'm pleading with you, draw near in worship. Hold fast in worship. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What are you holding on to in worship? A lot of people hold on to their emotions in worship a grudge, anger. They're holding on to a standard someone needs to meet before you forgive them. A hurt, a frustration. Maybe you're holding on to an unanswered prayer or hope deferred, which the book of Proverbs says makes the heart sick. And I believe what the author of Hebrews is saying is bring all of this to worship, but hold fast to something else. Bring everything in your heart. Bring every hurt, every pain, every ounce of anger. Bring it with you, but hold fast to something else. Some people hold on to worship style and song selection. But again, Hebrews 10.23 says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
Hold fast to the truth we proclaim together. Hope in uh, biblical terms is very different than our modern understanding of, I just hope something will happen. In, in the Bible, hope is more like a settled confidence that God will be true to his character, his nature, what he's written in his word. Confession of our hope refers to the truth about God, God's word, Jesus Christ, the certainty of our rescue in him and the faithfulness of God's character, which is why the writer of Hebrews says, for he who promised is faithful. He's faithful. And so I'm pleading with you, hold fast to that hope in worship. And then he says, consider how. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up is an interesting choice of words. And this word is difficult to translate. And so what I wanna do is show you the one other place in the Bible where this word is used. And it's, it's two words here and two words there. And as I read this, I want you to guess in your mind, what's the same word? It may be a little difficult, but in Hebrews 10, 24, we see the author say, consider how to stir up one another. What's the word? It's two words. What words are used for stir up? This is about Paul and Barnabas having a disagreement in Acts 15. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark and sailed away with him to Cyprus. The apostle Paul and Barnabas are having a heated discussion about the worthiness of Mark who deserted them a little earlier on another missionary journey if he should come accompany them again on this next leg of the trip. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. What's the same word? Sharp disagreement. You see, stir up has this sharp edge to it. It's not, hey, everyone get together and have a big pep rally for Jesus. It's not, hey, everyone get together and, and you know, just say positive things about each other, which I love it when people say positive things. I love it when people encourage me. But that's not what this word means. A better way to put it that may have both the positive and the negative connotations is consider how to provoke one another. That's what the author is talking about. When we gather for worship, one of the things we're doing is we are provoking one another. And I'm gonna give a little homage to my dad who's been a great pastor for 40 years he and my mom came to worship with us today because my youngest daughter, I have four kids, my last one got her first grade Bible today. And uh, I'm starting to feel the days counting down. I've got a high schooler, so we are looking at about three more years before the nest starts emptying out, which I just can't even believe it. Uh, but my last daughter, Ruthie, got a Bible today and her grandparents wanted to come up and see that. So here's a little homage to my dad to help us understand this word provoke. When my 
dad went to his first church out of seminary, uh, it didn't go so well. And I always remember him telling this story when I was a kid. It made a deep impression on my heart. He was only at the church for about a year, and after the year at the church, he, uh, he preached a final sermon. And that final sermon, he said a lot of things to the church in the sermon. There was a woman that came up to him after the service and looked at him and said, Michael, you stepped on some toes this morning. And my dad was a little nervous about how she took the sermon. And then she followed it up with, sometimes you gotta step on some people's toes. Now in the church, we wanna be sure we don't step too hard, we don't wanna always be stomping on everyone's feet, but the writer of Hebrews is clear. You gotta provoke one another. That sometimes in the church, you gotta step on some toes. And so if I may, I'm gonna step on our toes for just a moment. You saw all of these wonderful kids up here today receiving God's word and I just say thank you as a church family. The reason we can do that, we can be generous. Rich has extra boxes of of Bibles because this is a generous church that provides ministry for our kids and our students and our college students. But one of the things we're missing right now as we emerge out of the unique movement that was the past two years is a lack of people's willingness to volunteer, a lack of people's willingness to to get their hands, you know, back in the dirt of the disciple-making process. And we've got kids that want to learn about Jesus that are sitting there with their Bibles. I just loved it. They're all, they're not listening to me. They're like, what is this book all about? You know, what is a Deuteronomy? Come on here. Can someone help me understand that? And we need teachers and people to give snack, people to, to hold babies so that the next generation of disciples can be made right here in our midst. I wanna ask you, no, I want to provoke you. I want to step on your toes right now and say, please go to the foyer after the service. There's a a children's ministry station. There's a little QR code you can scan. It'll scan. It'll take you right where you need to go in order to sign up to be a volunteer. That That my wife sent me this article that was just in the Atlantic recently. And the article was entitled, Why America's Teens Are So Sad said the United States is experiencing an extreme teenage mental health crisis. From 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, it's hard for me to read, rose from 26% to 44% according to a new CDC study. This is the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. And I wanna ask us as a church to say, not on our watch, 
we will offer kids the hope. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And they need someone to tell them about that hope. So would you consider being a part of getting your hands dirty in the disciple-making process with our kids and our students as well? And not just at the chapel are we supposed to provoke one another. We talk about the church as the family on the mission, that we gather as the family and then we go on the mission, that what we do at the gathering on Sunday must impact how we go on Monday. That as we provoke each other here, it spills out into every aspect of our lives. How are we alerting people to the gospel, the good news about Jesus, wherever you find yourself throughout the week? So the author of Hebrews says, I am pleading with you. Consider how to provoke one another. And then in verse 25, he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author says, draw near, hold fast, consider how, and none of this happens if we don't show up together. And I know this season has presented challenges to showing up, which is why we have been committed as a church to worshiping together outside, inside, and online. And I see the way the online people, I see you. I can't exactly see you, but I, I see you with my heart. I see how they pray for each other in the online service. And I just encourage you, if you need to worship online, please do that and consider worshiping live where our operations pastor, Luke Kincaid, he can chat with you, hear your prayer requests, you can pray for each other. But none of this happens if we don't show up and worship together. And the community of Hebrews was having a hard time with that. They were going through a very painful season as a church. And the guy that taught my New Testament, profess, my New Testament class in seminary, a guy named Luke Timothy Johnson, he records their difficult time in just a few sentences. He's gonna summarize it faster than I ever could. So hear these words from Luke Johnson. The author is concerned that his hearers will fall short of God's promise, chapter four, verse 11. He worries about their drooping hands and wobbly knees that might tempt them not to finish the race, chapter 12, verse two. They are in danger of losing nerve and faith, of losing confidence. Chapter two, verse three, and he lists a bunch of other, bunch of other references there as well. He then says, the visible sign of their disaffection is the failure to meet in the assembly as they had before. The visible sign of their disaffection is their failure to meet in the assembly as they had before. My first job at the chapel was in student ministries. And I loved working with those, uh, with those kids. And every once in a while, a parent would come to me and say, you know, my, my son or my daughter isn't, 
isn't connecting well? Is, is there anything you could do? And, and I might reach out to that, that kid. I might send their small group leader, whatever it was. We would try to make sure that every kid was feeling connected. And, and sometimes it worked and, and sometimes it didn't. And that always frustrated me. And this happened enough, you know, this was a, I would say, one of the top three questions I would get or concerns I would get from parents, you know, hey, my son or my daughter isn't connecting. I set out to really figure out what was going on. Why did some kids seem to just connect like second nature in student ministries? And why did some people have a hard time? Why did some kids grow in their faith and some kids didn't? And, and why, did, why did some kids continue on in their faith in college and other kids struggled a, bit, a little bit more? And what parents would often say to me, which was hard to hear, and that's why I went to investigate it, was they would say, well, I think you only cater to kids that go to Lafayette and Jamestown. And I would kind of wonder, is that true? I don't want that to be true. That's not our intention. Is it true? And so I looked at this over and over again in kids. And what I found was there was only one thing that predicted whether kids would connect one thing that predicted whether kids would grow in their faith, one thing that predicted whether that commitment in their faith would endure beyond, it was who showed up consistently. I saw kids from Walsingham, Homeschool, Providence, Warhill, Bruton, Lafayette, Jamestown, Hampton Roads Academy, whatever school it might be. If they showed up consistently, they connected in biblical community and they grew in their faith. And what's true of kids is true of adults. If we show up consistently, we will feel connected. We will grow in the body life that Jesus has provided here. Our discipleship will be deepened. And so every time you find yourself frustrated by the never-ending cycle of work we endure as humans, I pray it points you to the completed work of Christ. And since his work is complete, worship becomes our work. Worship that draws us near. Worship where we hold fast to the hope we have in him and worship where we consider how to provoke each other to deeper levels of discipleship and impact for God's glory in this world. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we are excited to help you connect to Christ and His community. Have a blessed day.